This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Today, we have the privilege of sharing Joy's story. This will be a two-part episode, and both episodes will be available today. Joy and her family were longtime members of an Acts 29 and SBC-affiliated church in North Carolina. Joy was a thoughtful and dedicated volunteer, leader, and deacon of the women's ministry at her church. It was an honor to hear Joy's story. She has immense integrity and grit, and we are deeply heartbroken for what her and her family have had to endure. For Johnny Harris, I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus stop. Welcome back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast, and we are honored to have Joy here today. Joy is going to be sharing her story about her time at her church in North Carolina, which is a dual-affiliated church, Acts 29 and SBC. Joy, welcome to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and we want to get into your story because it is a doozy, and I want to jump in because this church, like many churches we've talked to in the past, it has an interesting kind of genesis to how your story really kicked off. You really were, you know, essentially tasked or appointed to kind of start or lead a women's ministry. Yeah, the church was planted originally in, um, I think, 2009, and we didn't show up there till like... 2013. And there was like an informal women's ministry at the time, which didn't really gain as much traction as they'd hoped. So around like 2018, the pastors wanted to kind of kickstart a really formal, more organized women's ministry. And that's when they asked me to take the role to head that up. And this was a volunteer, it wasn't a paid position, correct? Yeah, it was really exciting, which it's kind of sad looking at it now in hindsight. Um, I was initially a little nervous about stepping into a women's, women's ministry role. All I wanted to do at the time was teach a Bible study. A friend and I had started one, and I had had bad experiences with women's ministries in the past. I kind of associated them with more superficial events. But as I got into it, and realized there was a lot of desire for women for studying the Bible, for serving and using their gifts. 
in the church. And I was thrilled that I had the chance to really provide that opportunity for women to serve in ways that they hadn't before. Initially, it was set up where there was, we called it uh, a women's shepherding team, um, which I was on and a small group of us who were kind of serving as an advisory board to the elders. Uh, We were tasked with making sure women were cared for, uh, investing in the uh, women who were helping lead community groups with their husbands. There just seemed like a lot of potential and I had a lot of hope. It was great at first for the first year or so. Yeah. And who actually asked you to lead this group? The lead pastor asked me to step into that role. A number of us had been invited to kind of speak into the development of the ministry. And then there was actually another woman who had been there a little longer. She was a little older and was initially going to take on the role, which I was happy with. I just, like I said, wanted to teach Bible study. But then she decided she didn't have the time or space to do it. And so they came to me and said, we think you could do this. What would you say the culture of the church was? Yeah, the culture of the church, it definitely changed over time. When we joined, it was still had that really young church plant vibe where, you know, it was still pretty small and everyone knew everyone. It felt like a family. That's when I came on board in my role. We were still in our original space where it had been planted. But then in 2019, the church bought a property. It was an old textile mill and moved into that. Um, It was a much bigger space. It was kind of on the main road through town. And we had a whole lot of growth. And it was definitely a shift. It went from feeling like you knew just about everyone to there's new people coming in week after week. There was a lot more like of a consumer mindset that started to develop, whereas before it had been everybody's pitching in, everybody knows everyone, we're all invested and involved. Do you feel like that culture translated into the women's shepherding team and your relationship with the elders? Did that dynamic change right there in 2019 for you guys in that context as well? We, you know, I felt like we were kind of feeling it out because we were doing something brand new, but we all knew each other, trusted each other, so I thought, and were getting along well. We'd meet with them once a month, the women and the and the elders, and it was really a process initially of just figuring out how does this work? Um, how do we have... What's our voice? What's our responsibility? And um, like I said, like it, it seemed to be going well. It seemed like they wanted to hear from us. But kind of over time, there were a few, a few issues that, you know, in the founding documents of the ministry, they had said, like, this team is going to be here to provide women's perspective and voices into the significant decisions of the church. And around about 2020 and 2021, there were some significant decisions where they left us out of them and where I specifically spoke up and said, hey, why weren't we included in this? Why weren't we asked to give an opinion? And um, there was always a reason. There was always an excuse. But as time went on, I started to get pretty discouraged because I felt like we were told they wanted to hear from us. But when it came to, they made a statement on um, 
racial relations and Black Lives Matter in 2020. They were hiring a new pastor in 2021. And I asked, hey, this seems like something where you would want our perspective. And we weren't allowed into that. So um, yeah, it started like it started out with a lot of hope. What kind of things were your was your perspective allowed into? Yeah, it was I'm I'm trying to think of good examples. They would always ask us for like updates on what's going on with the women, what, you know, what's happening in the ministry. But most of it that we were included in was more like, well, how are people going to feel about childcare for this event or it felt like we were kind of one step outside of the things that I, I'd hoped we would have a voice in. Yeah, sounds about right. Okay, so now that we have kind of some of that background laid laid out for everyone, you kind of mentioned that all of you were a tiny like core group when it was in its plant stages, and then things shifted in 2019 when you bought this new property. But through that, you all are real close. So you have a friendship growing with the lead pastor. That's why he asked you to step into the role you were in, I'm guessing. Like, am, am I correct on that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did his friendship with you affect how you were leading in the women's ministry during that season? I have a lot of really complicated thoughts on that now as I've kind of looked back and tried to untangle what happened. I didn't know him all that well before I got into the role. You know, once I was put in that position, he said, hey, I think it would be great if we met once a month to talk about what's going on in the ministry. And you can give me updates and I can kind of coach you through this because he said this is a priority. I want to see this happen. And at the time I was thrilled. I was like, great. He thinks this is important. Women are important. I was excited because I was really a young leader, really hesitant, not really sure of myself. And he was like, coached me and mentored me. And I was really grateful for that. And looking back, he expressed a lot of appreciation for me and my gifts frequently. Um, how gifted I was, how grateful he was that I was serving in the church in this way. And it was really flattering. And I was honored. Now that I see things differently, I feel like it was a little bit of love bombing, just over the top praise sometimes. And there was a time fairly early on that he asked me for prayer about something going on in his life. And there was just this like really rapid move to like, we're friends, we're really good friends. In a conversation I was having with him and someone else in 2019, he's like, Joy is one of my dearest friends. And I at that time, I was like, whoa, I did not realize this. I'm kind of surprised, but all right, I'll be your friend. That was that was my kind of reaction. I mean, I, I really liked him at the time. We kind of got along, had this like brother, sister, kind of like teasing each other sometimes. You know, I think there were red flags that I missed because I was so hopeful and I guess naive. And as time went on, I started to see cracks. You just hit on something super important that I don't want to gloss over because I think there's so many listeners that are going to relate to that. I know I do personally, just this complete, utter 
lack of discipleship that happens for women and teaching that happens for us in regards to like boundaries and what's appropriate with church leadership and how to navigate that. Like we are just taught nothing about that. And so when a man, a pastor takes any form of like interest, not even romantically, just in general, in our thoughts or perspectives or us at all, it feels like, wait a second, they see me as a human. Like maybe we can actually have like a real peer relationship and we're not realizing the dynamics that like it isn't actually a real peer relationship. Like there are dynamics at play. I just want to point that out that like it isn't something wrong with us Mm -hmm. that we miss those things. It's something wrong with the system that we're not taught to understand those things. That is right. There is a purpose to not being taught that. Mm -hmm. And it's harmful for women everywhere. And it's also super harmful for men that are in these positions that don't understand what's appropriate or not. That's not an excuse, but right. It's just really damning of the system. Yeah. I think, I think it's a setup intentional or not the way the system works is for women who in these complementarian spaces have often felt like I don't have a voice. I don't have gifts. I don't have any kind of um, significance in the church. If, a pastor, a man in leadership starts affirming those gifts, kind of trying to even develop them or um, do any coaching or mentoring. It's so shocking. I mean, for me, having felt like men were the ones that got invested in, men who got FaceTime with the elders, men were the ones who were asked to serve and take on leadership roles. And for me, it was like, wow, I can't believe like the lead pastor wants to work on my leadership skills, see something in me, feels like I can be an asset to the church. It was such a difference from anything else I'd experienced. And and like you said, I didn't recognize the power dynamics that were at play there. Did he do this with any other women on the shepherding team? No. He met with uh, all of them initially to like do an interview and and help them because they all of us became deacons for that role. So he met with them initially, but then that was it. Then I was responsible to meet with them, but I was the only one that was getting that one-on-one monthly meeting. How was he coaching you in these one-on-one meetings? What was he? What was he leading? What was he doing? Uh, basically he would just say, what's going on? Tell me what you're working on. Um, and I would just come with questions like initially just trying to, who am I going to put on the leadership team? You know, who's going to be serving on this shepherding team with me? Um, or how am I going to set up? We eventually as time went on, had like a number of different teams within the women's ministry and, you know, who do I need to ask to do this? Or sometimes it was just simple questions of like, who on staff should I be asking about whatever I need help with? So it was really just, yeah, that mentoring kind of like logistical day-to-day stuff. And then if Mm -hmm. there was a conflict, because there's naturally human conflicts for all people, would you take that to him as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were a few little conflicts here and there. I always tried to work things out, but there were one or two where somebody went to him and then I had to address it 
with him. I kind of learned over time that the way conflict was handled in that church was not the way that I <laughs> that I naturally wanted to handle it. Um, he, whether intentionally or not, ended up becoming the person that people would go to with their problems. And then he would get involved and try to mediate or discipline or whatever. And it kind of short-circuited the um, conflict resolution process. I heard, again, you know, in the moment, those early days of meeting, I didn't know this, I was unaware. But a couple of years later, I started hearing more stories about how conflict got handled with so often people would go to an elder with their issue, rather than try to work it out with, you know, whoever in the church I'm, I've got an issue with. Yes, that was why it's interesting. That's what I was wondering about the culture was when there was a conflict, did the pastor position himself in the middle of that conflict? Yeah, yeah. I would say pretty much every time he would get involved. I don't want to ascribe motives. Um, I think it was a lack of understanding and um, a belief that he could sort it out better than other people. But um, there were a couple of, uh, over the years, there were two women in particular that I had conflict with. And a lot of the conflict came because rather than telling me that they had a problem, they went to the lead pastor and said, I have a problem with joy. And then he would come to me and say, so-and-so has a problem with you. And it was this horrible cycle of um, really ultimately unresolved conflict um, that caused more problems than solving them. And it's interesting because you always hear when we share stories, we always hear about like, well, you don't get the other side got to get the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting, the model you're describing to me as if I was a pastor is an excellent opportunity for a pastor to go to that person and say, hey, you know what? Have you talked to Joy? Because that's what you need to do first. Mm -hmm. And then if you can't resolve it, I'd mm -hmm. be happy to step into it. But I don't want to do that right now. Yeah. Instead, like he's putting himself in the middle of it, which... I always equate to like the business world. It's like if you have a boss or an executive who is supposed to be leading an organization, but yet he spends his time on meetings with accounting or with human resources. Like he doesn't empower the departments to do anything. So it's this weird culture where everybody kind of feels like the business world, where everybody feels like, well, I can't really make a decision unless the boss gives me his input, his or her input. Yeah, it really, it really did um, operate that way. And I mean, in one particular instance, I can think of there was a woman who was on the on the shepherding team. And um, she was somebody that I didn't know very well. She had actually been, uh, there were several members that I kind of sought out, but there are a couple that the lead pastor appointed directly. And this was one of them. Um, and she had problems with me um, and went to him repeatedly to complain. And at one point I said to him, hey, it just this is really unhelpful that, call her H, keeps going to you to talk about me. Like I, I'm trying to, I was trying to work things out with her. Like I, I met with her repeatedly, like sat and prayed with her in a coffee shop. And I said, look, I, I don't want there to be conflict between us. And I said, the fact that you're letting her come to you with complaints and then you're coming to me with her complaints um, is perpetuating the cycle of conflict. Would you please 
push her to me next time she comes to you. Like, ask her to come to me. And he said, no, I won't do that because you can't handle it. And that was like an interesting dynamic, for, I know, from like our conversations previously because she had been like a youth group kid for him, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's that dynamic at play, too, where he had been formerly a youth pastor, mm-hmm. goes, plants a church, and then kids that graduated and became adults now all of a sudden are being put into leadership roles. So that's also kind of just like a weird dynamic where, mm-hmm. I mean, it might be even even him treating her like a child mm-hmm. and you like a child. And I am curious, like, was this, was there ever conflict with men in the church? And was he doing the same thing with men in the church? Honestly, I do not know. I know of, I heard from a number of women that this happened with them and I didn't That's a really good question because I can't think off the top of my head of anything specifically with men. But I do know that he really had kind of a paternalistic uh, way of relating to people in the church. And I think, honestly, some of it came from that being a former youth group pastor and seeing people as like, I know better I can solve your problems. And so many of those youth group members coming in, following him to this church plant and continuing to see him as um, kind of a father figure. And unfortunately, like he didn't encourage them to think for themselves or, you know, grow up in that way. I view it as meddling, but that's just me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because I've seen this kind of dynamic time and time again, where it seems like the 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 drama is the the dopamine hit or something like that to get in and meddle and it's like i find it incredibly unhealthy because again like it you can't be all things to all people at all times and for you to have any type for you to be a healthy mm-hmm. leader you have to have the ability to delegate and trust and 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 empower people to do their job because that's what you want and mm-hmm. if you if you're constantly putting yourself in the middle of the most minute detail of everything or any type of conflict, it it becomes not only cumbersome to the people involved, but it produces this type of environment that everybody is just walking around on eggshells. And it it creates this type mm-hmm. of I, I've seen it. It's just this type of tension that it seems on the outside like it's super healthy and everybody's happy. But on the inside, it's complete chaos because there's one person in the middle of everything and you can't you can't survive that way. Yeah, that's definitely what I came to see over time was that uh, he wouldn't fully let go of any one ministry or task or whatever, but had his hand on everything and was basically had to give his approval to anything that happened, Um, whether it was posting an announcement on the church, uh, what was it called? You know, the internal church communications thing called a realm. Um, The city? Yeah, we had that and then it was realm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, but he had to be the one who approved it, had to be the one who said it. You know, I think it's just fearful leadership. Like I can't fully give anything over to people. And I think too, like Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll kind of talked about himself being a spiritual father. And I think there are men who 
have this need to kind of like, I'm going to be the father figure for this church. And that means that I make the decisions like this. I got authoritarian, Mm -hmm. autocratic father. Sounds so great. Um, (laughs) I have another question and then I want to move forward in your story. When it comes to this conflict you're talking about, would that have been cleared up with with him actually empowering you as a leader and and putting some clear definition definitions around roles mm-hmm. the understanding i have of any of this conflict it felt very much like it easily would have gone away had the person with authority to make like role definitions and put boundaries on things had just stepped in and done that Mm -hmm. because it kind of felt like this soup of like a lot of people feeling entitled to a lot of decisions. And so when any one person was making decisions, it was making other people feel slighted because they thought they were the person that was supposed to be making the decisions or have say in decisions. Is that an accurate view? I, yeah, I think that some of it, um, and in particular, the conflict with H was like, she eventually came to me and said, Hey, I think I want to step down. I'm, I'm done. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm sorry to see you go, but like, just let the lead pastor and the elders know, and thanks for serving. Evidently, the way that I responded to her, she didn't like. So she went to the lead pastor and said whatever she said, and he proceeded then to tell her, no, I think you should be on the team. I don't think you should step down. And so it was this just like, what was communicated over and over again is um, Joy is in charge of this until I decide that she's not or someone else doesn't like what she's doing and can come to me as the lead pastor and, and I'll get involved. So it really short circuited both my ability to be a leader and just blew up relationships and created an environment where there was just a lot of anxiety of who do I need to talk to about this? And if I say something, am am I going to have somebody go over my head? (laughs) Okay. So it's a, it's an unsettled environment to say, say it the best way, but there's definitely a lot of dynamics to play. No, no clear cut leadership or definition on who's leading what within the women's group, but you've been empowered to at least step forward and try to take some leadership role. You move into this awesome textile building, which I'm sure is amazing, with lots of coffee and people in ripped up jeans and Mm -hmm. maybe some tattoos. Then, like everything, the world comes to a screeching halt in 2020. And this really has a big impact on your church. Mm -hmm. So how did COVID and then Mm -hmm. ultimately the aftermath of COVID and what happened, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement up into the 2020 election. How did that shift and change the church and uh, uh, path, uh, the lead pastor's relationship with you? Yeah, it. I mean, like everybody it, it what experienced, like it was just a big chaotic mess and a lot of fear. You know, we went online for a while, had staff meetings online, and as we kind of started meeting in person again, some of those divisions, just political, started to come out in ways that we hadn't seen before. Um, 
there was conflict over, you know, masking and all of the COVID precautions. And I started seeing things on social media from people that where I hadn't really known about their politics before, but there was some of those really strident um, anti-vaccine and started coming to the surface. And especially after George Floyd and that summer and Black Lives Matter, the church, you know, made a statement that they read and had a, a meeting on like, this is our position. There was a lot of conflict over that as well. What was really disappointing to me in that time was that the statements, you know, their their statement boiled down to we believe Black Lives Matter, but we don't support the organization Black Lives Matter. It it never got further than that. I tried. We had a a, a women's kind of churchwide book club, and I suggested to the woman who from my team who was running that, who happened to be this one we've mentioned before, H. I said, I think it would be great if we read Be the Bridge by Latasha Morrison. I had read it with some friends in my own little book club and it was so helpful. And I thought like, this is great. Like we're all talking about race right now. This is a great Christian perspective on it. This would be an opportunity to really, especially where we were in the South in a very, very white church. Like this would be a a wonderful opportunity to discuss this and, and hear like, what does the gospel say about this? But she did not like that suggestion. And I mean, this is kind of like a microcosm of what these dynamics are that we've been talking about. Um, she went to the lead pastor um, with complaints like this book is inappropriate. She found some review from the Gospel Coalition about why this is a bad book. She did not read the book herself, but we had a conversation, the three of us, the lead pastor and H and myself, where she, you know, expressed that she didn't want to talk about it. And he said, well, that's too controversial of a book. We can't let the women be discussing this unless there's an elder present in the room and you need to pick something else. And I was just like, oh, you know, this is, it was, it was really disheartening. And I thought, well, maybe we can pick a different book on race, but I suggested some others and none of them were ultimately chosen. And so I just kind of let it go. But looking back, I just see like all of the problems in that situation that they wouldn't even allow us as women to have discussions around something important, something really significant that had to do with what was going on in our world at that time and how to apply the gospel to it. And that kind of unwillingness to wade into conflict in healthy ways or allow people to have hard conversations just kind of characterized so much of what would happen further down the road. What I find fascinating is like there is this unwillingness to have these hard conversations or like do any form of conflict resolution only when it would like, I I guess what I'm trying to say is like the lead pastor is very willing to say, I'm using air quotes, hard things to you, Mm -hmm. be direct and be um, like, give you reproof. But yet there's this unwillingness to allow people to hear hard things between each other and to heal Mm -hmm. from that. And I think that's weird. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. an unwillingness to allow 
for hard truths to be said. Like, we speak the truth in love or whatever. But, like, you can't speak the truth in love to each other. Only I can speak the truth in Mm -hmm. love to you. And, again, a lot of air quotes are happening while I'm saying that. I do not feel like love was a dynamic or, like, a a part of this, to be honest. Um, At least not the love that I have grown to know. So... That's just bizarre to me. Like, I just want to point that out, that that's weird, that you guys aren't allowed to actually have hard conversations over conflicts and to wrestle through things. But he's allowed to say hard things to you. But it is only when he is bestowing knowledge on you of things that he personally has wrestled with within himself, not with others input. You're not allowed to have a difference of opinion with that because he is the leader That's just interesting. I'm just throwing that out there for all of us to recognize. Well, what do you do? Like if he says, don't read this book, like what do you do after that meeting? Do you talk to H about it? Like, how do you leave that meeting? What are you thinking? Mm -hmm. Where does that topic even go? Well, I was, I left that meeting hopeful that maybe if this particular book that's controversial, if we can't do that, then maybe there's another book on race. Like I was just like, we need to talk about this. We live in North Carolina is an issue here in the South and we have got to discuss this. So that's why I suggested a couple of other books like Jasmine Holmes has a great book where she writes letters to her son. I suggested that and H didn't go with any of those. She went with something else that had nothing to do with race. And I was just, you know, like I was trying to like, live out my own convictions about leadership, which were like, I'm not going to impose my will on her. And if she is uncomfortable with doing this, maybe we can talk about it more later and do one of these books further down the road when she feels ready. But I couldn't force it. And all of my conversations had gone nowhere. So it was really, it was just disheartening. And I still in that at that time was hopeful that like, okay, we're just going to have to work on our relationship, work on our trust, you know, between me and H and um, it unfortunately didn't get better. I was just going to say this and then we can move on, but I was going to say you as a church, you cannot be for justice in any way on the fringes. You can't make statements and then not do the work to actually understand the impact that social justice issues have on people Uh, on Black Lives, on any other minority group out there that has faced and continues to face racism, oppression from a systematic angle to a personal level. You can't sit there and say, I'm going to make a statement and then I'm not going to do the work. And if you do that, you're not doing anything. You're part of the problem. So shut up. Just don't say anything. I'd rather you just read your white people books and not talk about it because you don't mean it. And, and I, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but it's, I, it's the truth. And the same goes for any type of LGBTQ thing. Like if you're not like, if you don't step in, if you don't want to step in the waters there and deal with it and deal with the justice for those individuals and that, those, those people, then just be quiet. Just be quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was really, as I've thought back to that, just realizing like that kind of reformed evangelicalism that focuses so much on what you believe. And in that mindset, which like I recognize because I grew up in it, like what matters most is what you 
the thoughts in your mind, not what you do. So as long as we say the right words about social justice issues, it doesn't really matter if we're doing anything about showing that Black Lives Matter. And I think it's there's a disconnect there that so many people in that world are just blind to. Like they've been taught and um, discipled into what I think about issues is all that matters. And I can't see the fact that these beliefs need to translate into actions and they just don't recognize it. We could talk about that all day. All right. So I want to move on because there is in 2021, there's a significant shift in your relationship with the lead pastor, which results in a series of meetings that you have with him and your husband. So talk through us, talk, can you expand on that? What, what was that shift? And then what were those meetings about? Mm -hmm. And what was discussed in those meetings? Yeah, who that's it's a lot. Uh, so in 2021, so we had an annual. The women's uh, ministry had previously done an annual retreat every spring. Of course, we canceled in 2020. 2021, the shepherding team and I were having a a meeting. Like, can we do one this year? You know restrictions are starting to ease up. People are coming out a little bit more. And we ultimately decided it's just not the right time. We're not going to do a retreat. And around that time, I heard from H like, hey, well, I know women, she said, I, I know women want to get out and do things. There's a group of us going to the beach a little later this spring. And I was like, okay, that's great. You know, she was part of a community group. There were a couple of community groups that continued to meet in person all through COVID. And these groups, I thought it was just these two groups who had spent a lot of time together that were going to the beach. And I was like, okay, great. Glad you can do that. Well, it was like in March of that year that I opened up my social media one day and I start seeing like photo after photo after photo of this huge group of women on the beach. And they're talking about they're watching the IF gathering and having basically a retreat. And it was, I think, something like 35 women that ended up attending this, which shocked me because at the time, that was probably a good third of the women who were active members at our church. And I started to hear things from, I had somebody call me and say, hey, was this the women's ministry that I ran was called Exodus Women. They said, you know, is was this an official Exodus Women event? Like, I didn't know about it. What What's going on? And I was like, no, I, I, it's not. It's just they decided to do this. But this woman that called me was like, I'm just really hurt. A lot of my friends went on this. I wasn't invited. And I started to hear this from a number of women who were feeling hurt and left out because basically what they saw on social media was we're having a women's retreat. And it's only for a select exclusive few who are invited. And then I saw them starting to post about how we're going to do this again next year. And I'm just thinking in my mind, okay, I feel a role that my job is to care for our women to make sure that they're, you know, just <laughs> feeling loved and welcomed and valued at our church. And I know the hurt that's happening right now um, by people who felt left out who felt, I mean, even among the pastor's wives, only a couple of them went and others were not included. And I heard from the ones that were not included that they they were hurt. So um, I sat and I prayed through it. I talked to my husband. I talked to some people. I was like, I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to care for, like, 
I'm supposed to be shepherding and caring for our women. What should I do? So eventually my husband's like, well, just call them and say like, hey, if you do this next year, ask if it can be an official event and leave it open to everybody. If they're already going to do it and they're obviously good at it, why not make it um, open to everyone? So that was my plan. And I called the lead pastor and I was like, look, I'm going to just get in touch with these women. I want to sort this out. And he's like, okay, great. Go ahead. Well, I did not realize what I had stepped in, I guess. And I did not realize the kind of response that I was going to get. Some of the women, like the lead pastor's wife was like, she was one that had been invited on the on this event. And she was like, oh, you're so right. This definitely should not happen again. We need to make sure that if any sort of big retreat is going on, it doesn't make people feel excluded. H, she was one of the ones who had kind of helped plan it. She got really offended when I called her. She said, this is your fault. I told you this was happening and um, you guys weren't going to have a retreat anyway. You can't tell us what to do with our friends, so on and so forth. And I was just like, whoa, I'm really sorry. I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your friends. I'm just asking you to consider. You know, I was very much, um, from my perspective, I was like, this is a great opportunity. And I remember telling her, this is a great chance for us to grow as leaders. I can see myself, I told her, I can see myself having gone on this had I had the opportunity to do it and not have thought about the impact. We're a family. We're a church family. Like, we're supposed to consider one another, honor each other, like, And now we have a chance to make it right, to make sure that we're loving one another as sisters and not letting people feel left out. So anyway, she um, didn't want to listen to me. And the next thing I knew, I got a call from the lead pastor telling me that H was upset and we needed to talk. What happened from there is she brought up in the meeting that when we sat down, she talked about the Be the Bridge book and what had happened with that and how I was micromanaging her and telling her what to do. She didn't appreciate my leadership. And it was really a shock to me. My kind of response was just to tell her, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel that way. Like, we can do what, you know, whatever you think needs to happen to work through this. Like, I want you to trust me and I want us to work on our relationship. I was just like, I'm the leader here. I need to take responsibility and I'm going to work through this and and see what I can do to like help her trust me. The upshot of all of that was a couple of weeks after this meeting, the lead pastor came to me and he's like, Joy, there's been some real concerns about your leadership brought up recently. And I was like, what? Like, other than H, like, I kind of know what's going on. He said, well, we need to do a review and we need to have a lot of people review your leadership and we need to find out if there are more problems that are going on that I haven't heard of yet. So I was terrified because this was like the shift, you know, up till then it had been, you're my friend, you're a gift to the church, you're so talented, blah, 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 you know. And suddenly he's telling me, I think there are problems with your leadership and we're going to ask a lot of people to share what they think about you. And he presented this to me with like, hey, this is your choice if you want to do it or not. But it was kind of like a, what do I not, do I say no? Like what, what happens if I say no? And honestly, I wanted to, because I'd been asking, that was a sad thing is I'd been asking, like, I want to grow. I want to get better. Can, even though I'm not on staff, you know, all this paid staff members had leadership reviews. Can I get one? And it had never gone anywhere. But now that H has complained about me, it's like, we need a review. So we go through the review process and um, he calls me in for a meeting and sets me down with this little piece of paper. Um, 
and it was like, high marks, high marks, high marks, high marks. And then there was a couple of, there was all anonymous comments, but they were all great, except for one or two that were like, okay, I know that was H, like, those are the things that she has problems with. At the end of the meeting, I was like, oh, this looks great. Like, I went through this looking at the paper and looking at the review and being like, okay, I'm relieved. Like, everything's good. I've, of course, got areas of growth, like everybody, and um, this is helpful and I can work on growing. And at the end of the the meeting, the last um, little bullet point for next steps that he provided was you need to determine whether you're going to lead Exodus women or lead Bible study. So basically what he asked me to do at that point was you have to give up half of your role. So yeah, so basically I was leading this women's ministry and I was leading and teaching our Bible study as one of the teams within the ministry because I had founded that Bible study and was building a team of teachers for it. And so he's asking me, telling me, you have to give up half of your role. And I was like, why? I don't understand. Like, it just came as such a, I was so blindsided, especially given the review, all of the good comments. Why do you want me to do this? And his only answer to me in that meeting was, I think it's best for you and best for the ministry. I was just stunned and hurt because I felt like, I remember going home to my husband and being like, I feel like this is kind of retribution for H and for all of that mess around that women's retreat. I feel like I'm being punished because of the things that she said. My husband, because we were friends, like they, he and his, the lead pastor and his wife had been into our house for dinner. Like we were friends and my husband was like, no, 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 Joy, like you're just too anxious. Like that's not what's going on. Like surely there's more to this. Surely um, there are good reasons for what's happening. So I like, I was prepared at that time. I was like, you know, if the lead pastor thinks I need to do this, I'll do it. But I just don't know how to decide. I feel like if I'm in charge of caring for our women and someone needs to be in charge of teaching them, like we have this Bible study, we had like a hundred women regularly attending Bible study at this point. Like this is a really significant part and it's my baby, you know, like I feel like the, the roles are kind of tied up and I don't know how to separate them. And so I really wanted to understand like, how do we do this and why? Like, how do I make this decision without even understanding the reasons or the goal? Or like, do you have someone in mind who would take over? And so that is where like that whole year, those it was probably six months worth of meetings that I had. Initially, it was me and the lead pastor one-on-one and my just asking again, like, I'm willing to do this, but I just need to understand, like, can you tell me why? And he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me. (laughs) Uh, He just said, I think it's what's best. And he eventually said something about, well, I think it's a time issue. You're just spending too much time, which I was like, how do you, how do you know that for one, that one really hurt too, because I had asked him earlier that year in one of our meetings, I said, look, like all of the pastors in the church, they had administrative assistants who did all their scheduling and all of their like, you know, admin work. And I basically did all of, I was kind of functioning almost like a pastor in the sense of I'm meeting with people and counseling women. I'm, you know, running this ministry, but I was doing all of it on my own time and without any administrative help. And so I'd asked him like, Hey, would it be possible 
for me to maybe get a little bit of administrative help. Not paid for my own work. (laughs) Will you Mm -hmm. just help pay someone else something small to help me? Right. I was thinking one of the admins, because I was friends with them, like would help maybe one an hour a week or something, just a little bit. And in that meeting, he just he laughed at me and he said, you just want to be able to tell someone what to do. And it was just like it cut me down so effectively, like I felt immediate shame, like I can't believe I guess that was stupid of me to ask. I shouldn't have said it. And I kind of shut down and didn't ask about it anymore. And so I brought this up in one of our meetings. And I said, like, if you think it's a time issue, like I'd asked you for help. And you laughed at me and told me, you know, you just want to be in charge of someone. And he said, well, you're just being too sensitive. It was a joke. That is just like one of many examples. Those meetings messed with my mind so much because I trusted him so much. I respected him so much. I thought he cared for me. And to have him kind of like, I see it now as like, it was emotional manipulation, the way he would speak to me and cut me down. I didn't know how to process it at the time. And it even took after us leaving for me to really kind of get clarity around what was going on in those meetings. Because it was just, it was, it was so hurtful because I had, so I had a baby in 2020, end of 2020, September, 2020, and took a little bit of time off and I came back and I I had the worst like postpartum experience that I've had, um, pretty bad anxiety and depression. And I ended up going on medication for it, which was incredibly helpful. And I had shared with the lead pastor what was going on because one, I believed he cared about me at the time. And I thought he was my friend. And so in all of this, when he was asking me to, to step down from my role, there's this part of me sitting there like waiting for him to say, hey, I've seen like you had a really hard year. I know you've been struggling. I care about you. And I just want to take something off your plate. And I was like waiting, waiting, waiting to hear that. And I never did. And it was just like this image that I had of who he was and what our like like friendship or relationship was was just like crumbling, you know, through those meetings as I went from thinking, this is my pastor who cares about me, cares about me as a leader, wants me to um, serve our church and wants to invest in me to like, I don't, I don't know who you are, but I don't think you care about me. Um, And it was so, it was so disorienting and so, traumatizing. Uh, I I really like I spent days just like weeping because I I could not figure out I could not understand what was going on. And the lack of care was just again and again, like I remember sitting and crying saying like, I don't understand why you're acting like this. And he just sat there like stone faced watching me cry. Something that is horrendous and relatable unfortunately and awful you said like you're waiting for him to recognize that you had had a hard year and to tell you like I just want to take something off your plate would that have been empowering to you in that moment I don't know if it would have I might have felt a little bit frustrated that he would would try to like make the decision unilaterally for me because that was part of my problem with it was like why don't I have a voice in this? I was just looking. That's I, I think that's how I would describe like most of those months of meetings was like I just kept looking like where's the person. 
that I thought cared for me? Like, where is the care? Where is the care? Surely, surely I'm missing it. It's there somewhere. Right. Like the impact can't be what they're hoping or what he's hoping. His intent Mm -hmm. has to be good. And the impact is just horrendous and harming me. And so you're just looking for any silver lining to this intent so that you don't have to face Mm-hmm. what's actually happening, yeah. which is so heartbreaking. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and it was just, it was this just weird, disorienting. I mean, I went from feeling like I'm in a church where I'm known and seen and loved and valued to like, I don't know who you are and I don't know where I am. But I was still hopeful. I still... I mean, it it helps me understand why it takes people so long to recognize toxic or abusive churches and leave because what I experienced, I believe, was some level of emotional abuse from him. I mean, I remember once in a meeting, like I was just, again, as we were trying to sort this out and I, I just making a casual statement, trying to say, hey, remember when you said this thing to me? And he like jumped in and cut me off really aggressively. Did I say that? Did I say those words? Just that like constant trying to like pick apart everything that I was saying and verbally like dominate me. It was just crushing emotionally. And but even despite all of that, I was like, believing the best of him. I was like, you know what? We've had a really hard couple of years. Getting into a new building was stressful. Then we had COVID. It's been a rough time. And I said like, hey, I just wonder, maybe you need a little break or something. Like, are you just maybe not in a good place right now because of what's happening? He like brought that up later in that meeting or the next. And he was like, it seems like you're trying to emotionally manipulate me, Joy. I was just Again, just bewildered. I was expressing my care for you and trying to believe the best of you. And you see me as a manipulator just trying to win something. I don't know. That was the other thing, too, is I was trying to hold this together and trying to like, how can I see you in the best light? How can we reconcile the fact that you like he lied to me a couple of times through this? And at one point I was like, wait, you said this. And but actually this happened. And like, it seems like that was not honest. Like, I think you lied to me. And he and he was like, well, that's one way you could see it, Joy. It was just that constant making me question what I had seen, what I believed. Gaslighting. Yeah. That's called gaslighting. That's the exact definition of it. Yeah. Yep. And I felt crazy. I mean, I did. I was questioning everything. I started writing down. I started to document because I was like, I don't know what's going on. I can't make sense of this. I just had to start like writing down what he said, the timeline of when things happened, because at that time, I was trying to bring some new women onto the leadership team, and he put a stop to it, and told me one reason. And then it turned out, you know, he said, actually, he like, portrayed it as there was always an excuse, like, oh, we had this thing going on, or we had this thing. And then further down the road was like, well, actually, I was expecting that you were going to be giving up one of these positions. So I just put the brakes on it. So whoever ended up in that role could decide. And I was like, so you're just manipulating this whole situation and not giving me like the truth of what's going on. And he did not and would not acknowledge that he had hurt me, didn't show that he cared. It was finally after we met with my husband, I finally brought my husband in because the lead pastor in one of the meetings said, well, Joy, if you're having all these issues with me, the executive pastor 
who was on sabbatical at the time, he's about to come back. And when he gets back, you can just bring charges against me. And I was like, no, like, I don't want to bring charges against you. I just want to work out this friendship and sort out what's going on with what you want to do with my role, because I'm so confused right now. In the end, he sat down with me and my husband and he had a sheet of paper where he he acknowledged he's like, I he didn't say I sinned or I did anything wrong. He he admitted to have making mistakes in how he presented things to me. And he specifically used the word I aired. It was this moment for me of just like feeling really crushed because like all I wanted in all of that was not to like win something or even like I was still willing to give up a role or do whatever he wanted. I just wanted to like have him say, I see that I hurt you by the way that I treated you and I'm sorry. And he wouldn't go there. He wouldn't go there. My husband and I both like went into those meetings, went into that process, believing the best of him, thinking we trust this man. He's our friend. We think maybe he's made a mistake or is just not in a good place, but we're going to work through this and sort it out. And at the end of it, we were just like, what just happened? Like, who is this and what's going on? He actually went on an unscheduled sabbatical after all of that happened. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe he's going to come back from that and be like, hey, I got, you know, had some time to get my head straight. And, you know, I'm just really sorry. Like, I was just, there was still like that little part of my heart that was still hopeful and still believing the best and thinking like, okay, maybe like once he's gotten some distance and perspective, like, we can sort through this. But he came back and like, never said a word about it. And I stayed on in my role the way it was. And I think, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I wonder if he felt like I lost this, but I'm not going to lose the next one because like what was about to come ended up just totally destroying me. So he goes on the sabbatical, nothing's really resolved. So you don't really have a clear understanding of why you're, he wants you to step down now there's this dynamic where the relationship is turned to where mm -hmm. it's, you may not even have hope to shave the friendship at this point. You don't know. He comes back from sabbatical and then there's something that happens in January of the next year that is uh, seismic in nature. What happened? Yeah, he came back from sabbatical and we just kept meeting like nothing. You know, we didn't really talk about what had happened. Um but it was there in the background. Uh, and at this time, I had been reading The Great Sex Rescue, <laughs> which Shout out is Sheila. an incredible book. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you, Sheila. Um, and I had recommended it to a number of women. And I also posted about it on my social media, which I very rarely posted anything uh, on my social media, like book recommendations, never anything political, like, but I was like, I've got to share about this. This is such an important book. I was hearing from a lot of women who had been reading it and were like, this is great. My husband had like guys reading it and talking about it too. Just, I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. That there was a Sunday in January of 2022 that the lead pastor came to me after the service. And he's like, Hey, Joy, I need to talk to you. Once everybody kind of clears out 
if I can get a minute with you. And I was like, okay. We had this huge lobby. I remember like it was just the two of us in there. And he came to me and was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like there are people who have been coming to me with concerns about what you're posting on your social media. And I was shocked. Like I didn't know what to say. Because first of all, I was like, I don't even post anything controversial. What could it be? You know, um, pictures of my baby. I don't know. Um, and I start asking questions like, what What are you talking about? And it, he's like, it's about the great sex rescue. You said it was one of the best books you read last year. And I was so like, it just caught me off guard. I, I was like, what? Like, what is contra- like, because it's about sex? What's what is controversial about this? He said, no, the author is an egalitarian. And I was so surprised that that was the issue. And really, I I mean, in the moment, I just, I remember just the, like, the fear in me, because it was just this very intense, like, um, I could feel the heat um, coming from him, like, and I was like, well, I think it's a really helpful book, like, I don't see why, like, she's not talking about women in ministry. Like she, this has nothing to do with egalitarianism. Like, um, what is, why is that a problem? Um, and he was like, well, she's, you know, I've looked her up and she's very vocal about it on social media. I was just trying to like find my footing. Like, I, I don't even know what to say here, but I was just like, well, first of all, like, why wouldn't, if people are coming to you, like, why wouldn't you have sent them to me? Like, if they have problems, shouldn't they come to me about it? And I don't remember specifically what he said in response to that. But I do remember saying to him, like, is that really the way you want our church to run? Like, with people coming to you and informing on one, on one another? And like, in hindsight now, I'm like, that actually is the way the church ran. Like, and that was the way I think he wanted it to run. I felt under attack and I, I'm like, are you, are you threatening me? I, I don't know what's going on. Like, and he's a very large man, like much larger than I am. And, you know, he's just like towering over me angry. And I, and I felt really uncomfortable. And my husband eventually like found me cause he didn't know where I was, walked over and like stepped in and heard what was going on. He's like, wait, we're trying to like censor this book because of the views the author holds. Like, what about Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther? You quote from them and like slaveholders or people who are anti-Semitic, like don't we have, can't we have discernment to separate out like what's good and, and what's bad in their views? Um, and he didn't really, it was a really, really tense conversation. And like the, the end of it, he was like, well, you just shouldn't post about that book anymore. And I didn't, say anything one way or the other I just walked away kind of stunned like I can't believe what just happened and I remember like the rest of that day just like shaking because it was such a disorienting and unsettling experience because I could I could sense there was a lot of like anger and like a desire to to shut me down behind that yeah was it just how he was posturing himself or were there specific words that made you feel threatened because the fact you vocalized that is honestly amazing and Mm -hmm. also telling to me and I'm just curious if you could point out the specific things that that led up to you feeling like are you threatening me yeah 
It really was more, it wasn't the words so much as the body language and just like, he's kind of an intense person to begin with, but there was like a level of intensity behind what he was saying and like kind of red faced, like this wasn't just a like, Hey, by the way, just wanted you to know it was like, I have a plan here and you need to listen to me right now. Um, there was, there was just like a level of intensity and like that I felt anger towards me and like my poor kids, um, they were like in another area of the lobby where they could kind of see some of this. And one of their friends was with, uh, with them too. And like, as we were walking up, they're like, was he fighting with you? Were you guys fighting? I mean, they could see that the, that this was not just a casual conversation. Like there was conflict, there was intensity behind it, um, that children could see from far away. And I was like, no, no, like, oh, you know, just people having disagreements sometimes, you know, I was just trying to like, I didn't want my kids to be like seeing their, our pastor, you know, as a bully, but that's kind of what he was being in that moment. It makes me nauseous hearing you talk about that because I can totally like my body can feel what you're like, what you're explaining right now. And Mm -hmm. I mean, Jay, you probably can too. Like anyone who's been in a conversation like that, your body knows exactly what she's describing right now. It's like that just, Mm -hmm. I'm not safe. Intensity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're not safe. Mm -hmm. And I can't pinpoint like what it is, but I know I'm not safe. Like there, there's cues, mm-hmm. there's language. I also think the absurdity of the fact oh, that yeah, he's I ang- well, yeah. I mean, one that he's angry, but two, he's the the part that he says he's angry about is that she's an egalitarian, like that she, like she views women on equal footing as men, mm-hmm. as pastors and and leaders, which I do as well. So mm-hmm. I welcome your feedback lead pastor if you want to come talk to me that'd be great i'll even come to you we can talk together so but i'm just saying like that to me shows the absurdity and also like this like the how like how unhealthy we are with our theology of how we view women or our beliefs of how we view women that it cruises that type of anger it's i mean like it's it's insane. Like, and if you think of it like from the outside end, like, yeah, you can you can believe in this gospel, but we've got our we've got our order here that you've got to follow. And this order is this way. And if you don't follow it this way, like we're gonna get angry and mad at you. Like it's just it's crazy. And I could feel the heat and the redness of someone's face. Like you can feel when their body hunches over and they're they're just so intensely staring at you. Like maybe they're holding their hand out. Like it's a hundred percent like this violent spirit that I've experienced and it's unbecoming of any pastor at all. And in my book is disqualifying immediately. I think you described it well, Jonna, like not feeling safe. I felt like there was a force coming at me. Like I'm going to control you. You're going to do what I say. I think that was kind of what I was perceiving and what I ended up perceiving a lot more as the year went on. But you're right, Jay. Complementarianism. I mean, at the time, there was no part of me that was interested in even pushing conversations about women's roles. I was not asking those questions. I was not even worried about that. And the fact that women's roles is such a has become for some churches like a first order issue. Like 
on the level of the gospel itself and that we have to shut down anyone who talks about it. Like, I, I don't think that's healthy or appropriate at all. No. Like, <laughs> we can agree to disagree. <laughs> well, I just think it goes back all the way into how women are viewed in these spaces. We are not wise or discerning enough to even hear a whisper of a woman being empowered in any sense, or we will be swayed immediately into sin and wanting to have authority in places we shouldn't have it. So the men have to protect us from ourselves. And God forbid we read a book that maybe tells us we're worth something in the bedroom. Like, are you mm-hmm. kidding mm-hmm. me? There's so many layers to that that are just so telling for how women are viewed by him. But it's not just even a him issue. It's a systemic issue. Like women are seen as children. We're children to be managed. You you keep us in line. You keep us there. And we're there to serve you and to, and God forbid, you even attempt to have any form of pleasure in any area of your life. <laughs> like, good nets, good riddance. It's so infuriating. Mm-hmm. I think that whole authoritarian, you know, like that mindset, that's why it's so toxic is one, it creates these leaders like the that believe that they should have unquestioned power and it also disempowers the people underneath because what happened in that church was there were so many people who were only too happy to be told what to do and told what to think. It's destructive to everyone involved, but um, that's what happens when you have that kind of authoritarian system. And again, for and then we'll move on. It's not Christ-like because if you read the Gospels, Christ is always giving up power right he's he or he's or he's positioning himself on the same level as other people the only time that he ever shows authority uh, in the sense of like over demons or something like that or sickness or illness mm-hmm. but the only time he tries to exercise some level of tension that is i guess you consider at least i would consider heightened is with the religious people mm-hmm. it would be the equivalent of our pastors and elders did you do anything with your social media post? Like, you have this crazy encounter. Like, did you go delete it? Well, they were just, like, on my stories oh. on Instagram. They had not they weren't <laughs> even up anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, <laughs> were, like, on the main. No, no. I had just, yeah, I think twice posted it on my stories. And I didn't do it anymore because I was like, well, I'm not going to be, like, in your face. I still did talk about the book with people, but... um I was like, fine, if it's that big a deal, I won't, you know, like. It blows my mind. Like you were every time that you would get admonished, you fell underneath that authority. And to me, that shows Mm -hmm. me that he knew he could keep pushing the boundary for how much authority he could have over you. So it was like, oh, she listened here. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go. But but that encounter in the lobby seemed to have. It derailed everything. Like, you are now a problem. Yeah. You're a problem for him. I, in my own body, listening to this, I'm, like, nauseous for you right now because I have felt these feelings, and it sucks, and you're just living your life 
still in relationship, still underneath his umbrella at your church yeah. for the yeah. next couple weeks. Yeah, it was hard because honestly, I had a meeting scheduled with him, one of our monthly meetings coming up. And I was like, okay, we need to talk about this more. Like, we need to really have a conversation. But that meeting never happened. <laughs> uh, it was actually the the next one that we were supposed to have was on a would have been on a Thursday. And I mean, I, I remember this all so well. The day before the scheduled meeting, he called me and was like, hey, we need to talk. He said, tomorrow, we're not going to have our regular meeting. Charges have been brought against you, Joy, and the elders will be presenting those to you at that time. I think I said, okay. And (laughs) I just like, I could not process what was going on. I think I hung up because I was just like, I I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Um, You know, things had been off between us already, but I was just like, okay. And so I called him, like I pulled myself together and called him back and I was like, okay, so is whoever brought, like, whoever brought these charges, will they be in this meeting? And he said, no. And I said, well, am I going to find out who has brought the charges? And he kind of like didn't answer, didn't, like kind of was going around and around and then was fine. And I was like, so am I going to know? And he said, no, you're not. And I was like, how is that fair? Like, how can some anonymous person bring charges against me? Like, I don't understand. That doesn't seem right or just. And um, all he would say, and he said it a couple of times, is, I understand you feel that way. I understand you feel that way. And I and I was just like, uh, like, I mean, I felt sick immediately, like just nauseous and terrified and just like, I don't I don't know what's coming, but it's not good. Like I could. What are we? First off, at so many charges is such a weird way to say that. Like we're going to court, Joy. (laughs) It's so intense. I'm just like these dudes in the audacity of these men to be like, all right, if we're going to do it, we're going to go all in. It's charges time. It's charges time. Well, I know. I think they had to do it that way because I was a volunteer and not on staff. Like they didn't have the ability to fire me because they weren't paying me. You know, like they had to find a mechanism to push me out. And so they made one up because like, as I asked and tried to like dig into it, like they, there was no like prescribed process for doing this. There was no like procedure they were following. They just created it. This and, is not biblical. Um, like made even it up on the fly. When no. they lo- the, these spaces love Matthew 18. It is their favorite passage in the Bible. It is literally on plaques. I'm sure in some of their offices, like, can't do anything about it because you didn't bring more people with you or whatever. I just, it is so counter everything in the Bible. The idea that just an anonymous person can say whatever they want about you. And now we have formal charges. And that's, that's, I mean, I asked that in that very first meeting, I was like, how is this even fair? And they, they were just like, well, we have these accusations and we're going to have to investigate them. And I've gone back over and over, like, how could I have 
gone through it in a way that had a better outcome. And and I just, I don't know if it's possible because I think they had a plan or he in particular, the lead pastor had a plan from the start, um, had already made up their minds and were just going to do what it took to move me out of the way. This has been part one of Joy's story. Part two is out now, so make sure that you listen to the conclusion of her story. There is so much beauty and goodness and integrity in her story, and we are honored to share it with you. I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are the speaker's own and not those of this podcast. This content is presented for informational and educational purposes that constitute fair use, commentary, or criticism. While we make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, we welcome any comment, suggestion, or correction of errors.